good afternoon, or I should say evening, or I guess, thankfully, night, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Arizona Wine Monk podcast with Ethan, who is an employee of Cellar 433 over the summer. We're drinking Dolcetto tonight. Um, I have two Dolcettos. One is a 12 from Dragoon, which you'll have to tell me more about later in terms of barreling if you know. Um, it's got a fancy label, and by fancy I mean it's a, a shiner that has 12 Dolcetto and, dol- and duct tape. Or, not duct tape. Well, blue painter's tape. tape. Blue painter's tape. Um, sorry, my bad. <laughs> um, Ethan is going to be crashing the night, and he had a Dolcetto, and it's like, wait, I also have a Dolcetto in my cellar. And it's a really interesting one. This is the Nama, or uh, sweet red sort of sacramental style wine, uh, from St. Anthony's Monastery in southeastern Arizona, which, uh, from what I remember the monks telling me is either in... I heard two ways. Either it's entirely Dolcetto or about 25% Barbera. Um, So St. Anthony's, um, for those playing at home who care, which is probably none of you, um, is the Greek Orthodox Monastery in Florence in southeastern Arizona. So they actually also have one of the lowest elevation vineyards in Arizona. Uh, Father Manus is the winemaker there. There's a Florence, Arizona? There's a Florence, Arizona. Hmm. Uh, it's in the middle of the bloody desert. They don't call it Firenze? No, they, they do not. Okay. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact elevation of... Florence offhand, it's about, it's higher than, uh, I know it's higher than Phoenix, um, I guess I could actually Google that, but that would not be super relevant, but we're doing it anyway, because we can, because sidetrack ahoy! (laughs) It's a three hour tour. Elevation of Florence, Arizona. Because now I really want to know. Ah, 1,490 feet. So yeah, it's definitely low. low compared to any other. And from what I also understand, it's the earliest to, uh, one of the earliest vineyards to harvest typically. And everything's typically harvested by October. Unfortunately, I don't know really much about how this was made, whether it was late harvest or, um, oh, sweet. These are the same year, 2012. Hey. That, that's fantastic, actually. I, I Simpatico. That was this was clearly uh, or serendipity, depending on. Or uh, clearly, uh, God meant this to happen. And there you go. So I'm opening the fourteen twelve. <laughs> the, I'm opening the fourteen twelve Dolcetto from <laughs> the uh, twelve Dolcetto from uh, Dragoon Mountain Vineyards. Uh, Cellar 433 first. Um, But going back to the uh, St. Anthony's, I'm not sure if it was a late harvest or alternately if it was um, standard harvest but fermentation was cut off. Um, I assume it was made the same way as a lot of the Nema or uh, communion wines in Greece made from uh, Muscat Altonel, but I don't know how those are made either. Uh, offhand, just because I'm too lazy to Google it right now and the interrupt us. The did not do his research beforehand. Well, to be fair, I also did not expect to do this tonight either. Right, right. This is so. Ethan calls me up while I'm <laughs> driving from getting two tires replaced on my truck because let's add more issues to 
everything that's going on in my realm lately. <laughs> um, and so I'm driving back from Walmart, and I, the car had been left overnight at Chateau Tumbui, which is where I was last night when I discovered I had a flat tire, tried to change it. Couldn't change it in the dark. Couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. Um, and so, it's like, okay, so... Ethan calls me, he's like, hey, are you around to drink tonight? And I'm like, I, you know, I was going to go and visit these places in Cottonwood and, and Clarkdale. And it's like, yeah, okay. So we hit Burning Tree, uh, had a great tasting there. Um, the Ulstringer is still pouring beautifully. I know I reviewed that on the blog before. Um, I didn't drink the Scapegoat this time. I, I reviewed that recently. But uh, definitely try the Muse. It's uh, a California Pinot Noir rosé, and it was Saunier style, and it's just so pale that it's almost like a white. Um, but anyway, the nose on this is so intense I can smell it from... I smelled it when we cracked open the bottle. It's oaky. Yeah. Do you know uh, which oak offhand? Uh, it's probably a combination of French and American, based so, on what I saw this year, although this is three years ago. But that seems to kind of be his uh, his operation, so to speak, though. Um, he likes to mix both oaks, by and large. Um, and I'm getting a little bit of that sort of bourbon molasses note that you get from a lot of American oak, but I'm also getting vanilla, which to me is kind of a tell for... Uh, well, vanilla, can, vanilla can be American too. This might be heavier on the American, but typically he does he does do a blend of both on most wines. Now I remember uh, the last wine I reviewed of his in depth was um, a Malbec that he did, and I took notes, audio notes on the Nebbiolos in the tasting room now. But um, at the time I was kind of rushed and I didn't get to go into it in detail. But I have a bottle. And I was going to save that for an Abiolo podcast, but I may just drink it to take better notes and <laughs> post it separately. I have not decided yet. Rest assured, when I know, you'll know. Probably, because it'll be all over the Facebooks. So, what's your background? Personally? Yes. Or on this wine? Well, we'll go you first and then the wine. Uh, well, I, I moved to California in 2007 didn't care about wine until then at all started tasting around started talking to people discovering that there was more than Chardonnay Cabernet Merlot and started talking to people really kind of falling in love with the you know the same old cliched story the romance of it the, the, the beauty of the land the all of that uh lost a good job that I had in the construction industry doing purchasing and took the plunge decided to go to school and uh, continued to taste continued to read, continued to enjoy as many different things as I could um, that idea took me here to Arizona where where John McLaughlin seller 433 whose dog we're tasting right now uh, he grows Oh, very, very many different varieties of very many things. Do you know offhand how many varietals he's got? 
including clones, different clones of the same thing, he's growing about 90 different things. That's a lot. It's uh, still not enough as far as I'm concerned. I, I want to see Saparavi out here. I, I wish I had a slide <laughs> whistle, because then I... Then, then it's, thankfully, we've got the wine monk to provide the sound effects for us. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, no, he, he was growing a lot of things and producing about 70 wines per year on six different labels, which is crazy in of itself. So we've got Fiddlebender, Arizona Angel, um, Sultry Cellars, Sultry Cellars, um, Bitter Creek, Bitter Creek, Jerome, Jerome Winery. What's the sixth? The sixth one is the one with the tarot cards. That is Bitter Creek, though. That's Bitter Creek. Uh, no, was it Odyssey or Odyssey? No, I don't know. There's another one. <laughs> I, I maybe it's the. We'll edit this part out. Uh, or, or if anyone knows the six label that John McLaughlin does, um, please tell me because I don't remember. And no, Bitter Creek is the one with the, uh, with the other artwork. the The one with the tarot cards is called something else. No, no, those are the tarot card ones. Those are also Bitter Creek. Yeah, the Death and the yeah. uh, Queen of Swords, and that that's Queen all of, Bitter Creek. Queen of Swords is a lovely white resumption. White Marson, yeah, that Mar- was Marson, I podcasted that with uh, Victoria Wildack. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of the supreme nerd fandom podcast that ended up being more about fandoms than wine. But <laughs> we're gonna make up for it now. <laughs> That's right. I'm not wearing a cosplay costume. You're cosplaying as yourself, clearly. Exactly. God, that's a terrifying guess, thought. What if people eventually cosplay guess, as me? I guess cosplay costume is redundant, isn't it? If you say cosplay, that presumes that you're wearing a costume. I I guess. And we're off topic. Shall we talk and, about the wine? And we've derailed. <laughs> so how many acres of Dolcetto does he have out there, do you know? Oh, of, of Dolcetto specifically? I don't know. I do know that he has a gigantic vineyard, which is 140 acres, Dolcetto, I think, is maybe four or five rows, which is... Not all that much, but... Not that much. Maybe one-eighth of an acre or so. Hmm. No, we're smelling the wine. This is where you need a sniffing sound effect. Or we can sniff more loudly. <laughs> it's a very aromatic red. I mean, like I was saying, when I popped open the bottle, I could smell it clear from mm-hmm. there as far away as almost a foot and a half away. Uh, it's also got a really nice spice nose to it. Yeah, it's got some spice. I think I think there's some some cherry. It's kind of a dark cherry rather than a sour, yeah. a, a bright sour cherry like like with a with a Sangiovese or something. Yeah, this is like dark cherry like or a, like a black cherry. Black cherry is almost a little bit of plum. Mm-hmm. Then you've got sort of the molasses and cedar and mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of that vanilla. It's got a lot of oak influence for sure. Uh, definitely huge oak influence. I wonder how long this was aged in a barrel. Well, it's a 12, and I pulled it out of a barrel a couple weeks ago. So it's still <laughs> in barrel. Yeah. 
Wow. Oh, this is fun. Barrel sampling! Woo! I think he is the, also the only vineyard other than... Actually, I think these are the two vineyards in the state only that are growing Dolcetto um, that we've got here in front of us. As I know... Caduceus sourced some Dolcetto from Luna Rosa in New Mexico. Um, I don't know of anyone else. I'm kind of surprised that um, Lightning Ridge, with their fondness for Italian varietals, isn't growing it. But, yeah, I think Dragoon and St. Anthony's are it. Could be. I mean, we've got the two 12 vintages from both. Oh, wow, this is totally awesome. Yeah. Cheers. See the spike on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> the flavor. Oh wow, there's that really nice acidity spike to towards the end of the finish. Um. Yeah, I think that what what drove me to this wine, and if I'm honest, I think I said this to Cody, rather the wine monk. They know you can call me Cody. They know, they know my real name. <laughs> All right. Uh, I said this earlier that I, I am often really not a big fan of Dolcetto. But this one seems to be very round to me. It, 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 it it's, it's a lot of oak up front. But then the you... finish th is th long. But then, but, the, but, then you get some, but then you get some fruit. And then it, and then it just keeps on going. And, you've, and like he said, there's, there's some acid that hits you in the back. And then it, but then that flavor continues after that and, sort of and spike. And it keeps on going, and it's a, it's a dark, it's a dark fruit, almost a sweetness. I think some of that sweetness is the oak, some of that is the fruit. I don't, uh, I don't think that there's actually. I, yeah, sugar. I don't taste any evidence of residual sugar. I don't think there's RS, but it, but it has almost a sense of that in terms of what you perceive sensorially. If that's a word, it is now. Which I think it is. It seems like a perfectly cromulent word. Cromulent. <laughs> it's fully croisoned. Sorry, that's a beer term. So I've got that oak influence on the front of the palate, like we were talking about. Sort of vanilla, uh, molasses. Uh, cedar as well, and sandalwood. Yeah. And then it kind of fades into this fruit. That dark cherry again with dark plums and sort of like a mulberry, actually. Sure. And then we get some more underlying spices as those flavors fade into the finish. Not much in the way of tannin, I feel. No, it's pretty smooth. Uh, it's, it's definitely... There's not a lot of grip, but... But... There is there is a lingering finish that that brings you through, um, for a while. <laughs> yeah, this is. Yeah, I, the last dolcetto, full dolcetto I had was from. Uh, I think it was from California, and I. And I didn't like it, at all. This I could actually totally dig and get down with. Um, there's a lot of complexity here. The other one there, I think, that I had was just kind of meh, really. But this has got a lot more subtlety to it. 
that finish is more or less still going on and on and on. It is, and I think it would be easy to just to dismiss this one at first if you didn't if you didn't let it sink in at first because it at first it seems like wow that's a lot of oak, but then you let then you let the rest soak in, and 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 you and you get rewarded for it. What did the dolcetto look like this year? Did you see any of it come in in the cellar? Um, I I think it looked. I, honestly, I don't remember specifically. He has so many varieties. Yeah, <laughs> we we harvested so many things. Usually, several per day. Um, for the most part, they looked pretty good. We had we had some delays because of rain, and we had some things that that maybe could have come off a little early, but I, I don't believe, I don't, or rather earlier than they did, I don't believe that El Teto was one, and the ones that didn't hang longer than they needed to because of rain looked really nice. Now, here's a... That was a, that was a non-answer answer for That's you. okay. <laughs> uh, but it's okay, I'm going to totally, like, backtrack with this question. Because uh, Dolcetto, roughly translated in Italian, is the little sweet one. Mm-hmm. Um... But now I'm wondering if that name is related to maybe the style of wine that's traditionally maybe this wine was originally made into in Italy. And of course, I don't have my copy of Jensen's Robinson here because it's in the tasting room. Don't you? It's in the tasting room. I know exactly where it is. It's just not right here. Thank you for not calling her Janice Robinson, by the way. Well, that's not her name. Well, I've seen it that way. Even in print, other people quoting her. Which I know is wrong, and it shocked me when I saw it, but I was like, Janice Robinson? Who's that? That is not correct. Anyway, once again, sidetracked. No, it's okay. Um, I always think to myself, oh, we, we're going to totally look at this book in the podcast, and I always forget it, and we not do it, and then I'm just like, shit, I'll have to look this up later, and then I forget to look it up later. And can you swear on the internet? This is the internet. Of course you can swear. Fuck. Just not that one. Oh, not that one? I mean, you can't. I don't really care. I don't, know. You, you, don't worry, you can edit that out. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I'll save the really dirty ones for when the mic is off. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it makes me wonder if maybe the one that we're going to be drinking next... Um, for all I know, maybe it was done in an Amarone style. I mean, I know... I know nothing about how the St. Anthony's Dolcetto was made, period. This is a mystery. Uh, the monks that were there didn't really know about it, and I wasn't able to talk to Father Menos about how this wine was made, which but is unfortunate. But y- You said, though, that it's a sacramental style? A sacramental style. Which means it's, it's sweet? It is going to be sweet. But there's several ways to make a sweet wine of course. for sacramentally. Um... A lot of Mavra Daphne of Petras, which is another big traditional uh, wine in Greece for communion, is made almost port style. And you have previous versions of it that are put into the current batch and then use that as a base for fermentation. And then it's fortified with sometimes spirit made from that or just fermented to ridiculously high alcohol, ridiculously high sweetness. Or you let it hang on the vines late and then you harvest it as a late harvest but it needs to be sweet and 
my understanding of this is that there's also a theological reason for this, but this is also... I was going to ask that exact question. Does it need to be sweet so people will drink it? Or does it need to be sweet because well, there's an actual doc- doctrinal... Not so much doctrinal, the- but what happens in the altar. reason um, During, just before communion is given to the Orthodox, um, it's mixed with hot water. So you have a little bit of hot water that you pour in because Christ on the cross, when he was stabbed by Longinus, blood and water flowed out of his heart. So there's wine, and then there's the water. That water kind of brings it up to a heated temperature a little bit, so it's kind of like body temperature, like blood temperature. Right. Um, but in order for that to mix properly, apparently there needs to be some sweetness to the wine. This is what I've been told by uh, a priest friend of mine who's also big into wine. And Interesting. The actual... There's some chemical thing that goes on, and it won't mix and mesh properly um, unless there's that residual sweetness there of some hmm. sort. Again, this is what I've been told. I could right. be talking out of my butt, um, but I guess that's the kind of the reason and rationale for why it needs to be sweet. But also, traditionally, wine used to be made sweet. It wasn't really until arguably as late as the 1700s or so that really dry wines became kind of in vogue. This is from... Probably later than that. Probably later than that. I'm kind of uh, highballing the, the date here. Um, uh, the, that's coming from a book called Wine, the Invention of... Uh, the Invention of Modern Wine or something of that sort. I can't remember the author. I bought it and I let it sit in the tasting room after I read it because it was interesting enough that I thought that people that were drinking there would want to... try it. So, out of all the grapes that were harvested while you were there, which ones did you think just totally were the best-looking thing? Came in spot-on every time. As far as what the grapes looked like, or as far as what the well, let's fin- go with both. The finished wine Not was. so much finished wine, because, you know... Well, it's not finished... Uh, still at all. Especially at 433, it's generally not... If it's a red, it's not finished for two years. Or, or three. Or... What is this four at this point? Well, it'll be three now. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm I know um, wine. I can't count clearly. <laughs> um. So John actually does mechanical harvesting, and they don't necessarily look beautiful when they come in. <laughs> in general, if I'm honest. Um. So it's really hard for me to say what looked really great and what didn't. I, I can say when I was walking in the field, certain things looked better than others. Like? Before they were picked. Um, uh, some, uh, some of the, uh, the Tempranillo looked really nice. The, um, the Malbecs were looking really nice. We actually have, uh, we have some Cunois, or Cunois, depending on who you ask. Um, well, if it's plural, then wouldn't it be Cunois? No. Really? <laughs> oh, I guess French is weird. It'd be Cunoises, but you wouldn't pronounce the... Uh, it, it would be Cunois, but there'd be an S on it. Oh. But you you wouldn't say it any differently than you would the singular. Well, that sucks <laughs> if you're talking about multiple right. members of Cunois, then I guess. <laughs> right, right. French is weird. French is weird. Um... I would say that the key is is getting is if things came off the vine 
at the opportune time. Naturally, mechanical harvesting the grapes. The grapes get beat up a little yeah. bit. I, 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 what are, yeah. What are the challenges of trying to make a wine that was me- the mechanically harvested grapes versus something that you handpicked? Here's the real issue. With handpicking, you can be very, very selective, and even if your harvesters were not a hundred percent selective, you can you can put them on a sorting table, and you can get rid of things that don't look nice to you. With mechanical harvesting, you really don't have that luxury. But in my experience this year, the proof is the proof is in is in the juice after you crush it. And does it smell nice? Does it have a nice color? And I don't even mean dark or light necessarily, but I mean clear well it's not clear because there's there's a lot of suspended solids but but i mean is is it reddish or is it brownish if you have if you have bad grapes it's going to look kind of brown if you have nice grapes it's going to be red <laughs> and i know that sounds oversimplified well what about for white then? what's the color difference oh well it's, it's actually a lot easier with a white with a white Certain grape varietals, Verdejo, uh, um, others, uh, Sauv Blanc, even 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 to a certain degree your Chardonnays, but if it's nice and clean, the the juice actually looks green. It's, it has a green tint to it. Okay. If 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 it if it was maybe less less than ideal then it'll have a brownish tinge but even if that happens that is you know you can that is not insurmountable problem you can you can overcome that um a lot of that kind of thing settles out but i feel like i'm 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 turning myself into a a railroad here no no that's okay i mean um the whole one of the points of this whole thing is because I never really have done a podcast with someone who's really out in the field all the time, really with the crush and the harvest. I mean, right. my my expertise is more when when the grapes come in, and then what do we do with them? Then, then, then in the field, and and by expertise I mean what I know a little bit about. I I, I will not claim to be an expert. So, next question. <laughs> um, we've got two questions, actually. Question one is about the wine. What would we pair the dry dolcetto with, I think? I think that would go really nicely with a, with a goat cheese. Or, or a, maybe something with a, some figs. And bacon. Yeah, I do feel like it needs something uh, a sweeter food to go with it. Weirdly, uh, I don't feel like it needs a big like definitely not steak. It's not heavy enough. No, um, no, no. It's. I'm not, not sure about even pasta. Definitely not with red sauce for sure. No, I think I think it's more of a a, a fruit and cheese wine. I think that 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 it is because it because it has it has a lot of fruit on it 
and and it doesn't have the tannins to uh, to to cut through meat or or rich red sauces. Yeah. But I think it would go beautifully with with a with a with a, a cheese that's on on the sour side. Yeah, like like a goat cheese, as I suggested, and uh, and uh, and a you know a a marmalade or or a, or a fruity jam. Of some orange sort. marmalade. Well, no, orange marmalade would be too acidic. Maybe. Um, hmm. I don't know. It's a good question. I haven't thought about it. Um. Question two, what were, um, and this is related to vineyard stuff, uh, what were the big challenges of the uh, 15 vintage? Uh, we definitely had some inopportune rain where we were planning on getting some things off the vines and then all of a sudden got hit with some really heavy rains that delayed it by not just that day. It wasn't like, oh, geez, we can't pick this day, but it was enough rain that we couldn't pick that day or the next day, or the next day, so it, like, pushed things back three days. Mm. I, I would say that was the biggest, the biggest issue. Having said that, I wasn't here in 14, but my understanding is that that was the rule in 14 rather than the exception, is that it just rained and rained and rained. And 14 rained. was a pretty freaking wet year. Um, I, 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 I can say that John... John McLaughlin said to me as I was leaving the other day that he feels like 15 may be his best year yet. And he's been doing it, I think, for 10 years now. Just about. So, um, you know, I'll take some credit for that, I guess. Probably. (laughs) That's, That's not fair. It really doesn't have anything to do with me. But, um, we, we, we had some weather problems, but, but apparently that's par for the course in Arizona. Yeah, the monsoon you, you have, is you have, you have, very you, capricious. You have the monsoons during harvest, which I think is probably the biggest knock against Arizona, if I, if I, if I can say that. But at the same time, it's one of those things that will definitely make Arizona wines unique uh-huh. compared, I think, to anywhere else. Because we're the only place that really has a weather condition like this where we're growing grapes. Mm-hmm. And if you want to hand me your... Other glass, I'll pour you the uh, St. Anthony's Dolcetto. Excellent. Yeah, but I, I would say that John was very happy on the whole with the way things initially. Obviously, it's you know he tends to he tends to age things for at least two years, but based on two or three months of 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 them being a finished wine, so to speak, he's very happy with what twenty fifteen has brought. And uh, my opinion, based on a lot of what I've tasted, that I spent many painstaking hours punching, um, a lot of them taste pretty nice. So now we're jumping shift here. Jumping shift. Wow, that made no sense. Um, now pouring the uh, St. Anthony's Monastery Nama Sweet Red Mac Sacramental Wine. Uh, 2012, same vintage, uh, 11% alcohol, um, or as the Greek says, Ecclesiasticos Winos. Winos. And that's my two years of biblical Greek finally being put to use for the first time. So my initial impression is, uh, 
you're not supposed to be able to smell sugar. Yeah. But it smells sweet. It does. It's got like this overripe, sweetened. Mm-hmm. Almost a raisiny. Raisiny. A raisiny nose. Which to me suggests probably that this was a late harvest rather than. Mm hmm. Although the alcohol is pretty low. Too, 11%, so. Yeah, well, they stopped it somehow. I assume probably uh, cold and then sterile, fil fil sterile filtration. Um, I don't know. Kent Calligan, I know, knows Father Manus pretty well. He would probably know more than I do about that. Or, you know, next time. The nose is strong, too. But it's almost like raisins versus that um, black cherry and oak component. I don't think that this really saw much oak. Or if it was oak, it was neutral. Yeah. Oh, holy sugars, Batman. Yeah, it's very sweet. Um, this is definitely more than, I would say, probably looking at about 4 to 5% residual sugar at least. At least. And that sugar is almost just detracting from the other flavors um, that are there. It's still got a very long finish, though. I think it's harmonious. I think it's... It's dried fruit. It's, uh... It's, yeah, it's got a sort of fig... Mm -hmm. Not fig dates. Like, dried dates on the palate. With a little bit of almost like a, a cacao nib... Or chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bit of chocolate there. I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that. But all of the oak notes are, are completely and utterly missing. There's no cedar, there's no vanilla, there's no yeah, I don't, molasses other than I don't the sugar. I don't yeah, I don't think this saw uh, any oak or like you said, if it did it was neutral. Uh, it makes me really want a cigar to go with it, actually. Yeah. Uh, or a good pipe, which I know is horrible to say about wine that could have become Jesus uh, at the sacrament. Um, well, that's what it represents, anyway. True. Well, actually, in the Orthodox Church, it's both the symbol of the thing and then becomes the actual thing. So it's not only symbolic, it is. Right. And we don't have a whole doctrine about it like transubstantiation of the Catholics. We just kind of throw our hands up in the air and say, It's a mystery! It happens. This happened. And it shall be. This happened, and it shall continue to happen. Huh. So, yeah. I, I, in that sense, orthodoxy is a lot more mystical than, than a lot of the Catholic tradition, I feel. I is, will stay out of it because I um, I don't know anything about it, so I'll leave it at that. Well, because <laughs> of my education at Holy Cross and how horrible that was, I don't really know that much about it either. That <laughs> um, was a largely a two-year waste of time. Uh, I probably should have gone to St. Flats instead, but so it goes. Uh, if you happen to be listening to this and are interested in joining the clergy in the Orthodox Church, uh, my recommendation is do not go to Holy Cross Hellenic College, <laughs> or as we called it, Holy Cross Hellenic College. Oh. Um, go to St. Flats instead, where... It sounds um, Greek. Um, St. Vladimir's? No, Hellenic. Oh, yeah, it was. It was the Greek Orthodox Seminary. Uh, St. Vlad's is sort of the OCA Russian right. Orthodox Seminary. But the joke is as follows, and this is passed down 
through the tradition in the many years at Holy Cross from those who came before me, and it was passed. This truth was passed down to us because we ch keep true as the Orthodox to the traditions that were passed down to us. Um, at St. Herman's in Alaska, they teach you that you use a censer in church. Uh, at St. Tikon's a in Pennsylvania. And for the completely uninitiated like myself, a censer is something where you burn the incense? Burn the incense and then uh, basically you swing it in the church during Ooh. certain times. and uh, There's specific rationale behind those times and Holy Cross didn't teach me about is that, those. Is and that the same as a sepulcher? No, sepulcher is tomb. See, I was um, way off. Like I said, I don't know anything. There, so. there's. Um, <laughs> I like words, though. So there is a. We, we could get into a whole linguistic. There is something there. called, I think, a canobium, that is kind of like a giant sensor, but I could be wrong on that. I could also be misremembering because this has been a fairly wine-filled day. Um, but anyway, <laughs> the joke to to get back to it is, at Saint uh, Saint Herman's in Alaska, they teach you that you use a sensor in church. At St. T. Collins in Pennsylvania, they teach you how you use a sensor church, when you sense, where you sense, what you sense. Mm -hmm. At St. Vladimir's Theological Seminary in New York, they teach you the beautiful theology of why you use a sensor in church. And at Holy Cross and Lennon College, they teach you how to fundraise to get the money to get the sensor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I, I, I guess you kind of had to be there to find that really funny but that's you know here or there uh, this is did this they, is did not they, did they say amen in the uh oh yeah amen but a melismal style very a, very a, loud and chanty a melismatic style I, I actually don't know that word and that's shocking well I being a choir boy, a non-church-going choir boy for, for many years, a melisma, as a musical term, means one syllable drawn out over many notes Okay. for a long time, changing pitches one syllable over and over, so it's, oh, that's a lot of, that's what a lot of the chanting in Greek is like, but for right. the amen, it's normally... Amen. So that wouldn't be a melisma. No, but you know <laughs> the the traditional chanting like uh, this is the Trabarian for the Holy Ghost. So son kiri etunayon so kevlogison tis pri. No, I totally forgot a stanza there. Shoot. Anyway, the point is that the yeah. what was the word you used? Melisma would Melisma be, would be the term, a, but if, if that style would be melismatic. Would be so. <laughs> Greek chant is very melismatic. Russian, as I have no idea because I've not heard enough Russian style chanting. So, what was the fun? What are some fun stories about the the twenty fifteen harvest that you can share with us? Um. I'm not sure this is any different than any other harvest, but throwing dry ice into macro bins and watching them bubble and puff yes. is, is pretty exciting and, and very entertaining. It's definitely, I, I think I quoted Shakespeare, specifically uh, Macbeth, a couple times. Uh-huh. 
Such was I, I changed it to dry ice burning bin bubble. <laughs> right. Bubble bubble. Bubble bubble toil and trouble. Temple neat temper new in the cauldron and something. <laughs> right, right. Something I right. don't know. Uh was, we, we we did a bit of uh a bit of um pallet jack jousting. I I I'm I'm not sure that really has much to do with wine either. Well, it depends but, on how much you were drinking first, maybe. Right. Uh, we did. We actually. This is this is perhaps interesting or of note. We had uh, uh, somebody come in, a a, a a videographer, if you will, mm. who uh, was flying a drone around. I saw the videos of that, and, and uh, he, at the tasting room. Now he he flew a drone through the winery. He flew it over the fields. Um, that was pretty fun. Uh, if you think that my voice is beautiful and sexy. Then you probably can find my image online via drone. <laughs> what will your girlfriend think about people trying to find you for, based on you saying that you're sexy? <laughs> if you think your voice is sexy, uh, I don't know. I said that. if. I didn't say you would. Um, but that was kind of fun that day when when that guy was there flying his little. Did they fix the irrigation leak? <laughs> which, which which one? <laughs> in, in the drone footage in the tasting room, I was with uh, Gary, my friend, who we've done a couple podcasts and we'll eventually do more sooner rather than later. I hope. Um, we were looking at it and we see like this big fountain of water coming <laughs> off on the prince. It's like, oh, that's an irrigation leak. They should get that fixed. <laughs> yeah. These things happen in oh, yeah. the vineyard, especially when it's 140 acres. Yeah, you can't really patrol all of it every day. It's, um, it's got to be pretty tough. So, a worse problem is no water. Too much water, yeah, you need to fix that, but no water is much, much the worse. The bigger problem. Yeah. yeah. I guess last year I had to dig a bigger well because of some... Or deeper well because of some bigger... I guess the well ran dry or something, or so I heard, but that's neither here nor there. Mm. I couldn't tell you. I, I, I only have been here this year. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know why I even mentioned that. I'm. So we've, like I said, we've been to Tumbleweed. We've been... Well, <laughs> I've been to Tumbleweed twice today. Hooray. Love, love you, Shout Out Tumbleweed. Um, Shout out. Man, Burning Tree. We were going to try to make it to 4 8, but we ran out of time before everything closed and we had dinner at uh, Nick's. Uh, you had a Tempranillo there, right? I did. It was, it was uh, you know, I, it was satisfactory. It really upsets me in a lot of ways that a lot of Arizona restaurants aren't serving more Arizona wines. I mean, I understand... That I would agree with. I, I understand that from a price point, because it's very hard to do wholesaling. But at the same time, it's... You should be so showcasing your local vintages versus not. Um, but then again, I'm biased, and if you want that, there are restaurants that cater to that, like F&B, which I was really hoping to... Uh, 
meet Pavle this weekend, but the Rabbit Island brunch was canceled. Teardrop. Teardrop. Double teardrop. Double teardrop. Double teardrop all the way across the sky. What does it mean? <laughs> oh my god! I've been waiting my whole life for a double teardrop. Oh, but that being said, I bet the uh, monsoon storms when they came in down in Wilcox at that vineyard were spectacular. Just that open landscape I, in Wilcox. I, I am tomorrow morning leaving to go back to Fresno, and I am really going to miss the the beauty of Wilcox of of the being surrounded by mountains and seeing the weather systems move in and move out. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. I grew up in a small town in a rural area. And, uh... I really liked Wilcox in a lot of ways. No, uh, honestly, I would not mind ending up there in the very, very long run myself someday. Um, but for now, Jerome is kind of my home and I feel very cozy here, but... It's possible that once I get to the point where I can have my own acreage and my own vineyard, which God knows when, if ever, that's going to happen. Um, thank you, Holy Cross Loan College, and all those student loans. Thank you, student loans. I don't think I can ever repay you back for what you've done for me. <laughs> um, well, I got ten years on you, and I've embarked on my whole new odyssey of student loans. So. I think the only way to, to deal with student loans is to continuously play the game of never, doing a new... Ne never stop being a student. Exactly. <laughs> if you never stop going to school, then you never have to pay your loans back. Yeah, which maybe is what I will do in the very, very long run, because eh, why not? What the hell? It doesn't really matter. I mean... Although, probably by the time my 20 years of income-based replacement and the government will collapse and um, student loans won't matter anymore because it'll be survival to the death and everyone will be shaking each other in the streets and mm -hmm. I'll be sipping my Nebbiolo just waiting for someone to come by and uh, right. steal my wine cellar. In which case, uh, you know, drinking Nebbiolo before I go, there are worse ways. Absolutely. They see... They say that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. The wine monk will be... Just drinking. Nebbying. Well, here's the interesting thing, is that there's lots of little... Ger while Jerome burns. There's a lot sense, of little... That makes any sense. Yeah, there's some crud in there. And by crud, I mean... Probably sugar crystals. Yeah. Seems to be like they've formed on the inside of the glass... Or is that yeah. bubbles? Or get in there. Yeah, I can't reach my finger it's in there at all. It's too deep. Because I'm not tasting any, like, uh, effervescence at all. No, it's not bubbles. It's not, it's not gas of any sort. But it, that is what it looks like, though. Is mine doing it? Is it just yours? Yeah, it is. It is, if, if you tilt it enough, yeah. Yeah. So. This is, this is a very strange wine, actually. Uh, this is, you know. But this is probably, you know, a definitely older style. Um, we're definitely stepping back the clock with this particular take on it. 
you know, going back almost a thousand years, because this would have probably been the first Olchettas that were made were probably more like this. Absolutely. Than the and and if you are a fan of sweet wines, Olchetto does it pretty well. Maybe we maybe we didn't say enough nice things about this. This is if you like really really sweet wine, then this is not a bad way to go. Shadow seems to <coughs> work up, work this way a little bit better, living up to its name. Exactly. The Dolcetto seems to be, and I hate to sound like the worst Orthodox Christian ever, but I am a wine critic and I am Orthodox, so um, I like this as a communion wine. I think more than the Barbera at Saint Paisius. Um, How does it compare to Manischewitz? Oh my god, don't get me started on that vile evil thing. <laughs> Manischewitz! I, I, I know that's a different religion. But, but well, no, there's some... <laughs> there's some crossover. There are a fair number of parishes that will use Manischewitz as a communion wine, and I am vehemently against that, because... Because it's gross? A, it's gross. <laughs> B, God should not have to do the heavy lifting <laughs> to make it good. I'm sorry. I agree. Manischewitz should never be used as a communion wine. This is my opinion as someone who spent two years studying at a Greek Orthodox seminary. So, take it with a grain of salt. Yes, it's cheap. Yes, it's easy to acquire, but it's not good. Spend the extra money Agreed. to get a communion wine made either if you're Orthodox of Malvernofia Patras or uh, a friend of mine brought a Kogler, which is a uh, Slavic-style communion wine from Bulgaria. She got it for me for Christmas, and I honestly don't know what grapes are in it. I haven't really even tried to look, but you know, or get one of the Nemas made with Muscat Altenel, something that actually is better. Something where honestly, God does not have to do the heavy lifting um, to make communion, because this is the thing about orthodoxy, and maybe other Christianities as well, is that it is kind of a feast for the senses. So you have the beautiful artwork on the walls for sight, you have the chanting and the singing mm -hmm. for hearing, the smell of the incense for taste, the feel of you know, the icons and holding candles and all that stuff. Um, and then you have taste, which is, of course, the communion. And, you know, uh, let us... And I know nothing about these things, but it seems that the Eastern Orthodox churches that you're talking about yeah. are more about the whole... Exactly. The, the whole experiments. Sight, sound, taste, smell. Exactly. All of those things go together uh, in, in the worship experience in the Orthodox. And that's one of the reasons why I was drawn to it is as someone who has fairly severe ADHD, um, if I get distracted in church, it's very easy to get back on focus and pray again because there's always something holy reminding me, oh, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, but, you know, the communion, Kim, is, is taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you're using Manischewitz, uh, it's not as good. It may still be good for your salvation. It will still be good for your salvation. It's good for children. Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't know. But 
not being a child, I'm sorry, I want. And I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this, but I want Jesus to taste good. Because that's what the communion hymn says. And taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm-hmm. So don't use Manischewitz for communion. If you take anything from this podcast, from me, it's don't use Manischewitz as communion. Right. And you can probably skip these last 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Although on that note, we, we should probably take this to a close and, and finish drinking on our own. Um, we also have some Petit Verdot from California. Uh, that Glomsky made that we're, we need to finish off because it's been open for about four days and I don't know how much... That's long enough. Yeah, how, how good it's going to be. Um, it may well have gone bad in that time, but this is what happens when you get busy and have other wines and go down to Phoenix for a couple of days and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, uh, any other fun notes from uh, the harvest that you want to share? How many people got stung by bees? Anyone got bitten by a rattlesnake? Uh, I got stung one time. I got worse, much, much worse than that. I got bit by a big giant red ant, which hurt like hell. And so I got stung by the bee. It was uncomfortable for 20 minutes. When I got bit by that ant, it hurt like hell for like two hours. So my my, uh, crush bee sting story and we'll close off with this after that. Um, very first crush I was down helping out for like a week. We were doing Grenache. And everyone else had like those thick knee-high rubber galoshes. And I thought, I'm going to be smart with all the liquid and all the water going on in the crush pad. Um, I'm going to be more comfortable in Tiva sandals. <laughs> right. So I have my Tiva sandals in the crush pad. This bee comes in. <laughs> <laughs> drunk on the Grenache that we're in the process of crushing and we haven't even crushed that bin yet we were crushing the other bin and I was going to get a bucket and this bee gets very lost confused lands on my little toe stings my little toe mm-hmm. and then dies and she's like really you had to pick like the smallest part of my body to you know and then it swelled up and then it swelled up to about three times its size and Everyone else that was there on the crush pad just <laughs> laughed at me hysterically. It's like, Cody, you're a moron. <laughs> right? This is why we wear these boots, you idiot. <laughs> and that was my first ever bee sting, so I had no idea if I was allergic to bees at that point. Um, that was your first bee sting? That was my first bee sting. You've lived a sheltered life. I know. Well, but also helped that from five on to <laughs> about... Uh, 12, I was very, very scared of bees. So whenever I saw one, I would flee. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, ah, whatever. And at this point, you know, after this song, I, I literally, like, stared at this bee, and I'm like, really? Really? My little toe? Really? It's like the worst possible place you could sting me. It's like, whatever. And so at the same time, I was like, Oh, I've actually never been struck by a bee, so we'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> and you're like, well, my toe is swelled up, but my face seems to be okay. And it's like my face is fine; I can breathe, and nothing else is swelling up. So clearly, right. I'm not allergic. Right. But yeah, I couldn't live that down for the rest of Crush. It's like, <laughs> hey, you got stung by a bee on your little toe. You're dork. <laughs> that's why you should wear shoes. And that's why you should wear real shoes. The other thing you should take from this is if you're doing Crush, wear real shoes. So if you take two things at all from this podcast is don't use Manischewitz as a comedian, wear real shoes on the crush pad during crush. 
But do try some dolcetto because but it, do try dolcetto because it can be done nicely. Yeah, I'm I'm quite impressed actually. Um, but anyway, um, because we're getting incoherent, we're going to sign off and drink <laughs> some more, and not worry about anyone recording us. And until next time, this is Cody, the wine monk, with Ethan. Although Ethan will not be with us for a while. Uh, Because he's leaving for Fresno tomorrow. But he might come back next year. We'll see. Yeah. But until next time, this is Cody signing off. Have a great evening. And uh, drink something delicious. Or else. Is that your tagline? No, I don't really have a closing tagline, actually. Normally it's... Don't you need a tagline? I suppose I do, but I've never really had one Uh, until next time uh, just eat drink be merry and for lack of a better tagline um have a good night y'all and i'll think of a better one later eventually maybe yeehaw